We're not live streaming this morning because the last two Sundays we tried to do it and there's been all kinds of hiccups. So we're just recording uh, the sermon and then that will go up on Facebook later this afternoon. So I can't say hello directly to those who are tuning in. But if you're watching this later, uh, lovely to have you with us. Uh, let's, let's be mindful of those within our church who uh, haven't uh, been able to come back with us yet uh, for various reasons. Some are still feeling cautious about uh, going out in public uh, because of their age or their health. Um, others because of their, the nature of their work uh, need to make sure that they are staying healthy so that they can uh, still uh, do the work that God's given them to do. We're continuing through the series on uh, This is my son, listen to him and this uh, chapter 13 of Matthew where Jesus gives us this series of parables about the kingdom and we're picking up a, a theme here aren't we? The theme of sowing seeds and the word going out and a people responding differently to that word. I'd like to share briefly about two, two young men that I've met uh, at the university campus and their two different responses to the word. Andy, his name has changed, uh, but there's a chance he might actually be watching this video later so we probably work out that it's him. I met him a few years ago. He came from a completely non-Christian, non-religious family, but he'd been sent to Catholic primary school. And some of the things that the nuns at the school shared kind of resonated with his heart and he had this, this inkling that, yeah, there is a God and, and God wants me to know him. But it was only later, as a young man, when he was at uni and through the influence of a friend of his who was a Christian, he realised that Jesus called for more than just having a whim in his heart that God was real. So he contacted us and asked if we could help him reconnect with God. We were very happy to say yes to that. Now over the years, Andy has gone through a few ups and downs. He's been on and off with his church involvement and so on. But it's so clear that the hand of God is on you, just sovereignly that work in his life, drawing him uh, to, to come to know Jesus. And I will sense that God is going to keep using the ups and downs in his life uh, to make him more like Christ. The other man that I met uh, early this year, uh, Rahul, again, I've changed his name, he's from India, he's a Muslim. And he expressed an interest in coming along to hear what Christians have to say, to understand what the Bible says. When I met up with him though, it became very clear that he wasn't so much interested in exploring the Christian faith as he was in showing us how the Christian faith is wrong and how the Muslim religion is the true way. His questions of me were less genuine inquiry and more just trying to set me up to point out how there are inconsistencies in my Christian faith. And so I kind of knew that pursuing that line with him was a kind of pointless. He was as interested in becoming a Christian as I'm interested in becoming a Muslim. 
the last week leading up to the parable of the sower, we saw that there were different people who had different responses to the gospel, different responses to Jesus and his words. And the parable was the illustration of the four types of seeds or the four types of ground in which the seed was planted, if you say. The first three will immediately or finally reject it. Only the fourth will receive it and will bear fruit. And we saw that this fourth group, they're only able to receive the word and believe it and bear fruit because it was given to them by God. We saw that the fruitfulness of this fourth soil exceeded all expectations up to ten times what was considered an average crop yield at that time. Jesus hasn't just come to give us life, he's come to give us life in abundance. Tom, um, sorry not Tom, Andy, I've changed his name twice. I called him Tom and then I thought him, I might be talking about Tom, so I Andy. <laughs> Andy is one who's received that word. God's sovereign hand is on him, ensuring that the work that he begun in him will bring it to completion. And I can't take any credit for that. We didn't go out and find him. God sovereignly brought him to us. Rahul has as yet not been given eyes to see or ears to hear. And until God does that work in him, his heart won't change. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to write him off and not stay in touch. I still need to be ready to be God's mouthpiece to Rahul. But I should never think that I'm going to convince him. He wants to convince me through logic and cleverness that Christianity is wrong and Islam is right. I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit working in his heart will enable him to see the truth of Jesus. We saw Jesus' prayer in chapter 11. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This emphasises this point. No one will be able to say, I've seen and understood the kingdom of God because I'm wise and because I'm understanding. We must become like children. We must be dependent on our Heavenly Father to give us all things, including spiritual truth. So this parable of uh, the wheat and the weeds and alongside of the two short parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, they continue this theme of the parable of the sower, the receiving of the word, but with a different emphasis this time. And we're going to look first at the, the two shorter parables. See how the, the mustard seed and the leaven are conveying the same idea as that fourth fertile soil. A few seeds in the first parable produce a bumper crop. A tiny mustard seed produces a great tree, even though a mustard plant is actually a medium-sized, quite scrawny bush. It's 
is not the largest of Gehenna plants, but this mustard seed, the final plant expecting a shrub, what he gets is a huge tree. And then a pinch of leaven makes enough bread to feed up to a hundred people. Three measures of flour is around about 25 kilograms of flour. That makes a lot of bread just from one tiny lump of sourdough. The world will tell us that we need wise and understanding people to build something that's great and enduring. And it's true if we deal purely on a horizontal level. But God's kingdom doesn't depend on human wisdom and human understanding. It depends on God himself. And when God builds his kingdom, it far exceeds anything that we might expect or anything that we, in our human wisdom and understanding, could ever achieve. There's many ways that the Bible describes our relationship to the kingdom of God. We pray for the kingdom to come. We see and we enter the kingdom through the new birth. The kingdom is among us in the person of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We are given the kingdom by the Son and in the kingdom we reign with him. And in the end we will see that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of God and of the Lamb. But nowhere are we told to build the kingdom. God alone is the builder. It's his kingdom. It's established by him. It's defended by him, it's made secure by him, ultimately it will triumph because of him. We run into all kinds of trouble if we think that we are the kingdom builders. We might be tempted to look at our church here this morning, which by God's grace has doubled in number in the last couple of years. And we might think it's because of something that we've done. And then we'll sit down and work out a strategy so that we can replicate what we did to grow the church so we can double our size again. And who knows, maybe down the track we'll be big enough to plant another church and the Beckel Christian Church franchise can be repeated. If we know that God alone builds his kingdom, that Jesus is the one who builds his church, then we can simply look at our numerical growth and give thanks to God that he has seen fit to do this as part of his own kingdom building. It means we can also be happy that if in the future he chooses to shrink us, that will also be part of his kingdom building. It may even be part of this plan that one day Bethel Christian Church will close down. Would we be happy for that to happen if we knew that God doesn't depend on this particular church for the future of his kingdom and for his glory? 
The world will also tell us that bigger is better. A few years ago there was a bit of a controversy when a well-known American megachurch pastor declared that people should leave their small churches and come and join his megachurch where things were really happening. There they had the resources and the people and the money to really make a difference for the kingdom. But let's get things into the perspective. In the first century, there was no such thing as a mega church. Under persecution, big churches are a problem because it makes it easier for the authorities to find you and to round you up. In the first century, Christianity was an underground grassroots movement, small groups meeting in people's homes. But still, the gospel spread like wildfire. The gospel reached the outskirts of the known world of the Roman Empire just through people sharing the gospel with their friends and their families and their neighbours. Long before there were any official missionary programs to send people, uh, I remember hearing a wonderful story about how the, the church, I think in Rome, said, sign up, we send missionaries to this island that we now know as Britain. And so the missionaries set out, when they arrived there, people said, oh yeah, we know, we're Christians already. The gospel had just spread through this grassroots movement, not through the big programs or the mega churches. They didn't need to employ great strategies and marketing strategies. God did the work through the word of the gospel. So these two little parables tell us that God takes the small and the insignificant and the ignored and the rejected and it's these people to whom he reveals the mysteries of the kingdom. It's these people that he uses to declare his excellencies and through whom he builds his kingdom. Here are Paul said to the Corinthians, the consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we're called to have confidence in what God is doing and what he will continue to do. He'll make sure everything in creation reaches the goal that he's set for it. His work will never fail. What we may feel are setbacks, maybe we feel the church today isn't doing as well as it should, we need to realise Jesus is big enough to handle his church. No matter how disobedient or lazy or distracted we might be. And often what seems to us to be a failure is simply his loving hand of discipline on us. 
So we might feel like that small lump of sourdough or the tiny seed, but the kingdom of God will far exceed what we might expect if we just look at our own resources. So let's look at the parable of the weeds, the weeds and the wheat. Now, the weeds described here are a, a type of grass which, when it's growing, looks just like the wheat, like uh, grasses. Except when it produces grain, you can see it's a slightly different looking head of grain, and the grains are dark colours and they're actually poisonous. If you have one or two, you'll have hallucinations and it will affect your sight and your speech. If you have too many, it will kill you. So the servants were worried. They were worried about these weeds being a threat, not just to the crop, but to anyone who might eat the flower that was tainted by these grains. They wanted to fix the problem thinking it would maximise the harvest. But the farmer has a confidence. He's confident that all will be well. He knows his enemy's strategy, but he too has a strategy, and he knows that his strategy will trump that of his enemies. So he's content to let the wheat and the weeds grow alongside each other, because at the harvest time, it'll be obvious which is which. Now Jesus' explanation of this parable is both helpful and confronting. Helpful in that, like the parable of the sower, which he also explained, we, we give an insight into how to interpret all of his parables. See how, again, the main actor in this parable is the sower which represents Jesus, the Son of Man. The parables, in that they are a picture of the Kingdom of God, are primarily about the action of the King. So the first thing that we should always ask when reading any of Jesus' parables is where do we see the King at work in the Kingdom? Where do we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit acting in this story? See, our natural bet as sinners who want to justify ourselves is to firstly look for a moral lesson, something that we're told to do or to not do so that we can duplicate the blessing or avoid the curse that the people in the story experience. And if we do that, we're just turning the parables into another law. We're actually reducing them to the level of Fables, stories that were told to children to teach them not to be naughty. And so if we didn't have Jesus' explanation of this parable here, we probably would have, by default, assumed that the sower represents us. And that it's a story about how we should manage or run the church or go about our life as Christians. But notice how in this story the people, which represents us, the people aren't the ones who act. They are the ones who are acted upon. 
the Son of Man so places the sons of the kingdom, us, in the world to grow alongside the sons of the evil one. And what do these seeds do? They don't do anything except to grow where they're planted, receiving the nourishment that comes from this super fertile soil. The farmer, the son of man, is confident that the sons of the kingdom will endure through to the harvest time and won't be threatened, won't be destroyed by the weeds. That's their security. Not their ability to remain strong, but the farmer's, God's confidence in his own strategy that it will not be undermined by the enemy. The kingdom of God is simply another way of saying God's rule and reign. Notice that in this story that the kingdom isn't confined within geographical boundaries. The field is the world. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, reigns over the whole world. He told his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So the presence of evil, the presence of rebellion in the world doesn't diminish his rule and reign any more than if I broke the laws of Australia that wouldn't take me out from under the authority of the government. It just simply would change my status to being, from being one who was under their favour to one who was under their judgement. But the authority remains despite my rebellion. So this, this is a, a parable about the confidence that we can have that God will enable us to stand firm to the end. Jesus' explanation of the parable is also confronting in a couple of ways. He uses quite strong language that probably makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. Is he saying that all non-believers are sons of the devil. We'd actually have to do a lot of textual gymnastics if we're wanting to say no. It's very clear, isn't it? There's either the sons of the kingdom or the sons of the evil one. What is he saying by this? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus had a conversation with some people who had made a profession of faith in him but he could see clearly that their actions and their words betrayed that profession of faith as being empty. They said to him, uh, he says to them, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one God, one father, even God. To which Jesus replies, God will your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. <coughs> Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he has done, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is a child of God? A child of God is one who listens to the Father's word and seeks to do his will, beginning with loving Jesus, his only begotten Son, whom he has sent. That's how Jesus expressed his sonship. He only did what his Father gave him to do and to say. Well, we too are created to be sons and daughters. It's what we're designed for. It's in our DNA, so to speak. Our true humanity is only expressed fully when we know and we live in our identity as children of the Father, when we call him Abba, dear Father. And that's why salvation is spoken of in terms of adoption. Adoption to sonship is the ultimate goal that the Father has for us in Jesus his Son, to be restored to the status of firstborn sons, of heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We're created for that. That means that if we forsake God's fatherhood, we'll instinctively seek out some other kind of fatherhood, someone else whose word we can listen to and obey. (coughs) Humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, we've heard the word of the Father, we've heard his commandments, but instead we've chosen to listen to another word, the word of the devil, who said, as God really said, you will not surely die. By doing so, by listening to him and obeying his word, we've adopted him as a de facto father. We've stepped out of the true father's house in our rebellion and we've moved into another illegitimate father's household. We've placed ourselves under his authority to do his will. From one angle, the story of the world is this story of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the evil one. The kingdom of the world is an insurrection, it's, a, it's an attempted takeover bid, a bid to topple God from his throne to set up humanity in its place. And in doing so, humanity has entered into a, an alliance, a deal with the devil. The devil promises us all the kingdoms and the glory of the world if only we would bow down and worship him. We think that this will give us freedom and autonomy of what we desire, but in reality it's nothing but slavery. The devil promises to be our father. He ends up becoming a tyrant and a master. In the cross of Christ and in his resurrection, God has defeated the devil. He signalled the soon demise of the kingdom of the world and he's pointed us forward to the day when the triumph of the kingdom of God will come and it will indeed in all of creation. Well, that's one angle, the two kingdoms. From another angle, it's the story of two families. The father is building 
his family, the children who are made in his image and likeness, the image and likeness of his only begotten Son, filled with the Holy Spirit who desire to do the Father's desires, to obey him, to be fruitful, to multiply, to take the glory of the Father to every corner of creation. But the devil is also trying to create his own illegitimate family with himself as the rival father, deceiving us, as I said, into thinking that he offers the freedom of sonship when in reality it's just the bondage of slavery. And it's to those in that slavery, that bondage, those who have adopted the devil as their de facto father, he comes and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the household forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's that return to sonship, that adoption back into the father's family that brings true freedom. In Jesus, we're taken from slavery to sin and we're given a permanent place in the Father's family. Freedom of love and peace and absolute security. Also confronting in this parable is that image of the final judgment. The day will come when the kingdom of this world, when the illegitimate family of the devil will come to an end and their destruction and judgment will be final and eternal. In, in this day and age of tolerance, we don't like that idea of eternal punishment. That's because we have a very trivialised view of our sin. We don't believe that our sins in this short life are enough to warrant eternal punishment. Because we think of our sins as naughty things we do, which is why we read the parables as fables teaching us not to be naughty, we look at ourselves and we look at those around us and we do a tally of our faults and we compare them to what we feel are our good deeds and we consider ourselves to be on balance with people, people who deserve to be in the kingdom, who deserve to be in the family. But there's two factors of human sin that we often forget or choose to ignore. Firstly, sin isn't just a list of naughty things we do. Sin is primarily treason against God himself. It's a rejection of his teaching. It's a betrayal of his fatherhood. Sin is a capital crime that deserves a capital punishment. Secondly, at and beyond the day of judgment, unrepentant hearts will remain unrepentant. For those who are God's children, we know the, the promise that death or the final judgment, whatever comes first, will be the point where our sanctification will be complete. The Holy Spirit now has applied the work of the cross of Christ to us so he set us free from the penalty of sin and the, the power of sin but one day he will also remove the 
presence of sin. There will be perfection. The battle with sin will be over forever. But for those who have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in pointing us to Christ, those who hear the word and immediately reject it or uh, adopt it in some way but then realise it's not what they thought it was and uh, turn aside, there won't be any repentance, there won't be any sanctification, their hearts will remain hard. They'll still prefer the darkness of their rejection of God than to come under his loving authority. So the judgment will be eternal because the unrepentant hearts will continue to be unrepentant. Well in this parable we live in the time between the planting and the harvest. And this is the time of the Father's great patience. It's the season of grace. The call is still going out to those who are the weeds. The call is still going out. The message of the gospel is still going out to them to repent and to believe the gospel and to come into the kingdom, to come into the family. Every day that the sun rises, Every day that we wake up and we're still breathing, we should be reminded of his patience, his great patience towards everyone. Every day is an opportunity to give thanks to him. Every day is an opportunity to receive that gift of life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great grace, your great patience towards us. That you are patiently waiting, patiently calling, patiently sending out the words of the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, uh, into the world. Thank you that you patiently uh, reach out to us and draw us to yourself, that you open our Death is you open up blind eyes and you soften our hard hearts and you enable us to receive with joy this word, this good news that gives hope and life and peace. We pray, Father, that we will always be mindful of your patience towards us, that if it were not for your grace, we would be lost along with everyone else. Help us also, Father, to be mindful, to be mindful of your patience towards those who haven't yet believed. May we be found faithful to proclaim the good news, speak boldly and confidently because we know you are building your kingdom. You have your plan, you have your strategy that you are working out and what a wonderful privilege it is 